When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. On Monday in Fulton County, Georgia, as you probably know listening to this, Fawny Willis, who is the district attorney, indicted Donald Trump and 18 other defendants on a total of 41 counts, ranging from RICO, that's the racketeering statute, to perjury, to making false statements, to soliciting a official to do uh, something contrary to his oath. It is a sprawling 98-page document, and it contains things that I think we should talk about that we haven't yet seen in the other indictments. And when you say in the other indictments, we shouldn't take that lightly. This shouldn't become commonplace that we now have four serious indictments in four different jurisdictions against Trump and his cronies. But this one is different. And I think it's important to underscore, first of all, why we need it. After all, isn't Jack Smith on the case? He's in Florida. He's in D.C. Why do we need a state prosecutor to be attacking this? And the answer lies in the indictment itself. These are very serious, thuggish crimes by a lot of people. It wasn't just Trump who was trying to break into machinery that counts the votes. It wasn't just Trump who was soliciting people or intimidating people. There was a whole mob of them. There was a crime spree. And this cadre of people cannot be allowed to simply walk free because it's too inconvenient or it makes too much of a fuss or the case is too big or the case is too small. This is a crime spree. And just like this prosecutor has brought other RICO cases I think 11 of them, she's obligated. It's part of her job. It's part of her oath to enforce Georgia law. So she's got to prosecute people who do these sorts of things in her jurisdiction. And if you're going to prosecute them, are we suddenly going to say, well, everyone except Trump? That would be bizarre. That would be letting the kingpin go. And that's what's at the heart of this. This, guys, is what the rule of law looks like. It means whether you're a state prosecutor enforcing state law or you're a federal prosecutor enforcing federal law, you follow the law and you follow the facts. And it doesn't matter whether you are an ex-president. And it doesn't mean that you don't prosecute them in one place because they've committed so many crimes in other places. That's a bizarre argument. Now, I also think it's important to remember, we use a shorthand. We say, Fonny Willis indicted or Jack Smith indicted. That's wrong. And I try to catch myself when I say that. Ordinary Americans indict. They sit on grand juries. This is a legacy of the common law that ordinary people, not the prosecutor, ordinary people decide when the power of the state is going to be brought to bear on an individual. And I thought it was a very telling portrait on Monday evening when you saw the clerk and what we assume was the 
foreperson of the grand jury go into the courtroom. An ordinarily looking guy in a suit, obviously trying to look his best in court, but an ordinary American. And when the Republicans talk about this being some kind of democratic conspiracy, who are the witnesses? The Republicans who are members of these grand juries, Republicans and Democrats and independents. So the notion that this is some kind of political weaponization is really something that they say but has no real meaning to it. I think of those Charlie Brown adult noises, the wah, 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 wah. And that's what I hear when they go into their weaponization of the law. So I think there's another issue that is floating around out there. We've seen it, frankly, in a op-ed for the New York Times, that we really shouldn't prosecute Trump because people will get really mad People will be upset. This will be bad. People will be divided. This is, in my view, is nuts. Of course, people will be upset. The people who are being prosecuted will be upset. The people who are defending lawlessness will be upset. So what's the alternative? We make the law-abiding people upset? We allow the country to be held hostage because Donald Trump is throwing a temper tantrum and enraging his followers? That's blackmail. And the notion that everything would just be fine if we all went back to our homes and, quote, let it play out at the ballot box. That was the same ballot box where the results were something Donald Trump refused to accept, has still refused to accept, and then embarked on a course of illegal conduct in order to win what he couldn't win at the ballot box. So saying we're going to resolve this at the ballot box is a little rich for my tastes. I also think there's a puzzling dissatisfaction, if you will, with the media. Some cases are too little, you see, to bring against Donald Trump. We have Alfred Bragg. Oh, well, it's just falsification of business records in New York. But, oh, we come over to Georgia and we say, oh, the case is way too big. It's sprawling. It's too complicated. Well, that's not how the law works. The law works that you find what crimes have been committed. If they're more discreet, smaller crimes, that's what you charge. If they are sweeping gigantic conspiracies, that's what you charge too. So there is no perfect sized uh, indictment or prosecution. And if you had a medium sized one, and I think we sort of do in Mar-a-Lago, people still would be upset because somehow you're not supposed to enforce those laws against Donald Trump. I also come back to a fundamental worry that I have. I know many of you share it, that despite the wheels of justice that I think are going to turn and are going to finally get Donald Trump, we have millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans who buy this stuff, who defend him, who are willing to go over the cliff of democracy with him. And you have to say to yourself, gosh, what? have we come to? We used to be very high and mighty in this country, that those terrible things that happened in South America or in Europe in the 1930s, the rise of fascist leaders, the rise of right-wing mobs, could never happen here. And I think now we see it has happened here, and it still happens here. And how do you drain that really venom, that bile, the lies? How do we bleach it out of the system? And I think you begin by holding people accountable. 
you have trials, you punish people, and then we hope, God willing, the voters will follow suit and will not return these people to power. That's how you restore democracy, return to normal. You don't simply hope that the venom will evaporate on its own if you reward people by refusing to prosecute them. So I think if many of you are frustrated that we're living in a world in which tens of millions of people seem to be bamboozled by Fox News. Well, yes, that's true. And we live in a world in which 74 million people voted for Donald Trump in 2020. Yeah, that's true. But it's also true that 81 million people voted against him. It's also true that you have dozens and dozens of investigators, prosecutors, judge, grand jurors, court personnel, lawyers who are working to preserve that unique rule of law that we enjoy, and that really buttresses democracy in this country. To talk about all of that, I have a wonderful guest today, Dan Goldman. You may remember him. He was the lead prosecutor in the first Trump impeachment, which seems like it's now years and years ago, but it was only a few. He was himself a assistant district attorney in what is probably the most impressive, the most uh, feared uh, district attorney office uh, in the United States, U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in the Southern District of New York, where a lot of RICO cases are filed, by the way. Um, And Dan is here to talk to us about the rule of law, about prosecutors, and also about his crazy colleagues who he gets to go to work with every day. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jen. Great to be here. My pleasure. An eventful day in Georgia. What a difference cameras in the courtroom make, isn't it? We don't have those in federal court. What do you think the average person misses in federal court or in New York state court when the cameras aren't there that we got a little bit of a flavor of on Monday night? Look, I I think it's just incredibly helpful for the public to be able to see the actual proceedings rather than get snippets uh, fed to them, either from the media, which, you know, generally does a good job, or, you know, from the parties and the lawyers or, you know, in this case, Donald Trump is, of course, uh, not shy about uh, speaking out. And so it's, it's very helpful. And I think it restores a lot of confidence in our criminal justice and uh, and criminal system uh, to see it play out. Because what you hear so much about is theater, is for public relations, is political defenses. But when you are actually in a courtroom, you must abide by the rules of evidence. A judge is controlling what is uh, able to be asked um, for the most part within the bounds of the rules of evidence and rules of criminal procedure. And what you see is a very orderly process that is so different from the political process. And I think that the American public would be uh, would really benefit from seeing how serious and um, uh, rigid the legal process actually is. And that's part of the reason why I signed on to a letter urging um, Judge Chuckin in the district in uh, federal court in 
um, Washington, D.C. to include cameras in the courtroom, which would, of course, be the first time that has ever happened in federal court. I certainly hope that's the case. I'm not holding out hope because the federal judiciary has been very um, anti-transparency, um, which is a real shame. But we've never had a president on trial either. So perhaps um, they will see the, the wisdom in that. Yeah, um, look, I think a realistic, uh, honestly, a realistic option is what the Supreme Court does now, yeah. which is audio recording. Right. And even if you aren't going to have video recording, uh, there's precedent with Supreme Court arguments to have audio recording. And I think that it would be it's not quite the same, obviously, but I think it would be a big leap forward to have uh, live audio recording of court proceedings in, in all of these cases. Agreed. Agreed. I want to take you back to your days when you were an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Those words like throw fear into the hearts of many criminals. Now, ironically, that was a place that used to bring a lot of RICO cases, but RICO under the federal statute, which is different in some respects. But the basic concept, I think, is the same. Explain to the listeners what RICO kind of means, why, what that adds to it, and how that will allow the prosecutor to sweep in some witnesses, some evidence that she might not otherwise get. Absolutely. I, I, I was in the organized crime unit in the Southern District of New York. I rose to be a supervisor of that unit. I charged several RICO trace, uh, cases. I did RICO trials. Uh, and it's a very powerful statute. Ironically, of course, uh, it was really established as uh, an incredible vehicle initially to fight the mafia by none other than Rudy Giuliani, who was then the U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York, where I later worked. And he did the Mafia Connection case, which charged several mafia bosses under the relatively new RICO statute. And the reason why RICO is so powerful, there are a couple of different aspects of it. On the one hand, in some ways, it requires more. You have to prove that there is a criminal enterprise that is engaged in a pattern of racketeering. And racketeering can be any number of different crimes, um, but you need to have multiple racketeering acts and multiple objectives. But the reason why RICO was established on the federal level and then has been adopted in many uh, by many states is really the the same reason why it was targeted toward mafia bosses who had a very um, structured organization from the top, top down that allowed these mafia bosses to insulate themselves from the actual crimes that they were directing and that they were benefiting from. And so what happens is if you can prove that someone is a member of an enterprise and then separately that that enterprise is engaged in a number of crimes, then you can prove that you can convict someone even if they did not actually do the crimes themselves. 
So it was, of course, originally designed to take on the Italian mafia, um, but it has broad application. And I, I did a, a number of RICO cases that uh, didn't had nothing to do with the uh, Italian mafia. I also did with the Italian mafia as well. And so the power of it is that because you have to prove an enterprise, you are allowed to bring in a lot more evidence than you might otherwise be permitted to bring in if you were just simply charging a basic conspiracy or a substantive crime of you know election interference or whatnot. And so this allows you to uh, expand the scope of your charges to more people who may not have been the ones specifically directing the crimes, but who were orchestrating things from the top and as many people, including I, have said for, for many years, you know, Donald Trump has acted as a um, poor man's version of a mob boss in, in many respects, and now he's being charged as such. And without getting too legal nerdy about this, um, and without RICO, some of that evidence um, either might be beyond the jurisdiction of this prosecutor or might be excluded as, quote, other bad acts, meaning that you're not really allowed to make the defendant look worse than he is by bringing up a bunch of extraneous things. But here, those extraneous things aren't really extraneous, are they? They're part of this sprawling enterprise. I think people should also understand Donald Trump doesn't necessarily have to know the identity of all of these people or have ever met these people, so long as they're working as part of this enterprise toward the common aim, which was reversing the election in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump, he, he needs to, you need to prove that he understands the objectives of the criminal enterprise. You just don't need to prove that he himself executed those objectives. And so, but you need to prove the contours of the enterprise. And because you, um, because you need to do that, you're allowed, as you say, to bring in a lot more evidence Relate, you know, as you point out, related to Pennsylvania or Michigan or uh, or Arizona or other states, to show that this is a um, a real uh, intentional and criminal organization. The question I get a lot is, well, isn't there a risk there'll be a ringer on the jury that they're going to have some Trumpian guy who kind of slides through all the voir dire and winds up, and we wind up with a hung jury? What do prosecutors, what do judges do to make sure that they don't have um, partisans, if you will, lurking in the weeds um, that wind up getting themselves on jurors? What, what fail-safes are there or what mechanisms do they use? So it's a little bit different in federal court and state court. In, in state court, for the most part, lawyers are actually allowed to ask a lot more questions of the jury to suss out their views. In federal court, uh, the lawyers, the prosecutors and the defense lawyers are, are generally not allowed to ask uh, the jury specific questions. But first of all, every juror is put under oath. So when they are asked questions, they are under oath. And if they lie, they can be prosecuted for perjury. Um, so there is always the threat of perjury if you are not telling the truth. Then you go through a set of questions um, that you presume the jurors are going to be honest about. The, the, what ends up being the critical component of this is um, whether a – even if someone has a – 
predilection toward Donald Trump or against Donald Trump, the judge will ask them if they can put that aside and be fair and impartial in evaluating the facts that are introduced in the courtroom and only in the courtroom uh, as applied to the law that is provided by the judge and make a fair and impartial determination of whether a crime was committed. And there's always the risk, and I've had it happen to me before, when someone is not truthful about uh, their connections or their views or their feelings, um, and they hold out. Um, But over the course of a trial, uh, jurors can suss out whether there are predetermined notions of which way another juror is going to go. And often jurors will bring that to the attention of a judge. Uh, And, you know, the system works. It's a serious, uh, I I have a lot of faith in our jury system, notwithstanding a lot of the skepticism uh, as it relates to whether, you know, a jury in Washington, D.C. can be impartial or whether a jury in Palm Beach can be impartial going the other way. The bottom line is most people who end up sitting through a trial like that take their role very seriously. Um, And a courtroom is just different than the public arena. And when people get in a courtroom, they understand the gravity of the situation. Well, believe it or not, I was on a jury once upon a time. And I got to say that is exactly right. Suddenly, it's like you're in a bubble and the judge sitting up there and the way people conduct themselves, you realize that this is serious stuff. Um, and, you know, whatever you, truths um, you have when the judge is asking you questions or the lawyers are, they come out. You are not in a position to lie or to resist. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. Switch gears just a little bit. Um, Jack Smith, to some degree, but certainly Fonnie Willis to a larger degree, has a challenge in explaining, if you will, a story to the jurors. Jurors want kind of a sense of what this is all about. Um, you know, tell me, like, 
what all these crimes mean, how they fit together. What's the challenge for a prosecutor who has zillions of witnesses, maybe zillions of documents, zillions of phone calls? How do they put it all together in a manageable way so that jurors who are not lawyers by and large, um, very few of them ever are, can understand the instructions, can apply them, and gets the sense that, yeah, the charges seem to match up with what the crimes uh, that committed uh, look like. Well, Jen, not a surprise. You are a lawyer and you get this very well. And that's that's a huge part of the calculation for any prosecutor. And especially in cases like these, uh, and I mostly point to the election, uh, the effort to overturn the election cases, both in uh, the special counsel's case, as well as this new case down in, in Atlanta. And you know, one uh, we we used to in the Southern District. We used to have a mantra, which is "thin to win." Um, you you are not better off throwing all of the evidence that you have it to the jury because uh, you have to recognize that the jury is sitting there all day, and it's hard to pay attention, and you do not want to drag it out and you do not want to include superfluous evidence, you want to really identify your best evidence, your best witnesses, and be really narrowly focused on making a strong and relatively concise case rather than just throwing the kitchen sink. And I think that a big mistake that a lot of prosecutors make is uh, not being able to leave on the cutting room floor evidence that you think will be helpful. And the reason is understandable, because if you don't get a conviction, will you always live in regret of not putting evidence in that, who knows, maybe one juror might say, oh, that is the, the critical piece that was missing. But on the flip side, you have a real uh, problem and, and potential for losing a jury if you throw everything in. So the real challenge in these trials is going to be for the prosecutors to, to be able to tell a story. I once had a judge after an early trial of mine who uh, said to me afterwards when we met, he said, you know, a trial is a production. It is like a theater and a play, and you need to present a compelling narrative to the jury. And if you are able to do that, it matters a lot less what the specific requirements of the law are to the jury. It matters more whether they feel like whatever happened was really wrong. And they will apply it to the law, as you know from being on a jury, but you need to create a compelling case. And if you drag it out and it's haphazard and you're throwing all sorts of evidence in randomly and then trying to bring it together at the end, I, I find that is a generally a, a less effective way of doing it. Now, the January 6th committee was not bound by the rules of evidence. They could use all kinds of hearsay. They could bring in all kinds of other. But I think that was a good example of what you're talking about. They told a story. They made all of these facts make sense from 
beginning to end. So I think um, if listeners are concerned that voters or um, jurors actually um, will get lost, there is a way to do this. Um, And um, you did mock juries. Do you expect that these prosecutors would as well? Do you think that they're going to have jury consultants? Um, How much preparation involvement do you think is going to go into this? Um, Because they're not going to probably have a bigger case in their careers. Yeah, my, my guess is they they will use um, those extra efforts to uh, fine tune their case. Um, you know, I, I there are two different theories on jury consultants. Um, uh, frankly, the prosecutors rarely use them in a case like this. They very well may just to make sure you dot all the eyes. Um, but there's, you want to get as much information about these jurors as you can. So when you get their names, you know, you'll do Google searches and you'll look up, you know, their social media and you'll try to figure out whether they have any, uh, expressed bias and you'll certainly do that research. Um, but I often feel like jury consultants, frankly, are a little, um, uh, uh, over they overanalyze things, and so um, it, it's not always. Uh, and there often are very two different views of a an individual juror as to who that juror might favor. Or and so you know you you can spend you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure this out. But look, I, I'm assuming. Um, certainly with, uh, the jury addresses, the prosecutors will use, uh, a, uh, a mock jury, um, and they'll sort of present the theory of the case and see how people react, um, as part of the, that process of winnowing down the evidence. Fair enough. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your new job. Um, I sometimes wonder if you regret leaving the sanctity of a courtroom where law and facts matter for the three-ring circus you have joined. But if anyone um, has watched you and a few of your colleagues at some of these hearings that the Republicans are running, I think they can appreciate your skill as a lawyer often pulling out evidence that is not intended by the 
majority side to come out or not particularly helpful. Um, what is it like being in the room with these people? Is this just crazy time? Do you have in advance a sense of what they're doing or what evidence is there? Or is it all kind of fly by your seat of your pants and try to figure out what exactly is going on in the moment? Well, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, I, I do come from the prosecutorial world of facts and evidence. Um, and I think that even though um, I find, it, at least in this Congress, that the Republicans are not very tethered to facts and truth, it's still very important for we Democrats to focus on the facts and the truth. Um, it is not helpful to our system, uh, to uh, our political system, to our congr- to Congress, um, for both sides to be um, shading or the truth or lying in order to pursue a particular agenda. And so, you know, my the ranking member of the Oversight Committee, Jamie Raskin, um, always refers to us on the Democrat side as the truth squad, that our job is to bring out the truth. And, you know, we will be we will not be afraid to call out wrongdoers, whoever they are, Democrat or Republican. Um, but you need to have facts and evidence in order to do that. And what we have seen from this Republican majority is they have jumped to conclusions prior to doing the investigations, and they're now trying to backfill in the facts and the evidence. And that's the inverse of how an investigation should be done, and we're seeing why. Because the facts and the evidence do not support their conclusions, yet they have already reached those conclusions. So they now need to skew the evidence in an effort to support their overreaching uh, conclusions. And so, yes, I still do think that even though your three-ring circus analogy is a good one, um, it's still important to bring out and focus on the facts and the evidence um, to make sure that there's a coherent, logical, rational response to some of the craziness that we see. I don't think um, listeners fully appreciate how crazy some of these conspiracy theories are. It seems that in lieu of evidence or even a logical argument, they simply throw out a term or a name, Hunter Biden, and expect that everyone will say, ooh, that's a bad thing for the president. Have you in all of these, in any of these, seen any evidence that the president, not his son, not his friends, not anybody else, the president has done anything illegal, improper, has made money off of his political positions? Have you seen any of that? No, right right now, um, there's been no evidence of that. And what you start to see is a sleight of hand by the Republicans. For example, um, the oversight Republicans have issued three memos uh, on bank records that they have developed. They refer constantly to uh, those bank records belonging to the Biden family. <laughs> None of those bank records 
belong to President Biden. And there is no evidence that President Biden has received any money, has benefited in any way, nor has influenced any official policy uh, or anything in favor of his son's business interests. And so what you have is we have now had some evidence um, that uh, over the course of 10 years, maybe twice a year, um, Hunter Biden would be at a social engagement or a dinner with some of his own business associates, sometimes domestic partners, sometimes foreign, and he would put his father on the phone to say hello. Um, What Hunter Biden was doing uh, is open for debate. And the Department of Justice has had a five-year investigation into whether Hunter Biden was doing anything unlawful. But what is clear is that President Biden never, ever, uh, used, uh, never had any um, use of Hunter Biden's or consideration of Hunter Biden's business interest in anything that he did. And in fact, the only evidence of President, then Vice President Biden's involvement or connection to Hunter Biden's business interest was detrimental to Hunter's business interest. Hunter Biden was on the board of a Ukrainian energy company called Burisma. Uh, we all know this by now. We talked about it ad nauseum in the first impeachment investigation, which uh, I was involved in. And what President, then Vice President Biden did was to encourage the prosecutor general to be removed by the Ukrainian government. That was bad for Burisma because that prosecutor general was corrupt and he was not prosecuting any corruption in Ukraine. There was no investigation by that Ukrainian prosecutor of Burisma or the Burisma president. That was an investigation by the British authorities that the Ukrainian prosecutor general uh, slow walked to the point where it ran into problems. And the most recent witness, Devin Archer, who was also on the board of Burisma with Hunter Biden and was a partner of Hunter Biden, said that Burisma believed they had that corrupt prosecutor general, quote, under control. So by Vice President Biden encouraging that he be removed, that was bad for Burisma. And that's the only official action that there's any evidence related to to then Vice President Biden's Uh, official actions connected to his son's business interest. Backing up a step, the question I get a lot and sometimes I ask myself is, do these people believe what they're saying? Some of the stuff that comes out of their mouths is so insane, is so crazy. I mean, these are people who presumably, you know, have to put their pants on and get out the door and have normal lives, that they have to function in the real world. It seems incredible to me that some of them could believe what they're saying. Are there some that really do? Are they all just putting on an act because they think they can get on Fox News and kind of bamboozle the public? What's your assessment of, I don't even want to use the word good faith, but their seriousness, their earnestness um, in all these 
investigations? It's a good question. I get it a lot. And I, I think my answer would be, and, and you know, I'm still very new to this, uh, although I was a staff member for the first impeachment, so I saw it there as well. Um, I think some of the Republicans believe uh, aspects of it or believe that there's a broader um, conspiracy, for lack of a better word, that some of these uh, these investigations fit into. But there are definitely some who uh, view this as purely performative and uh, view it from a, a very um, cynical, ambitious view of promoting their own brand, their own publicity, uh, and getting more attention um, that, you know, ultimately improves their fundraising, improves their status, and may yield uh, benefits uh, down the road. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, there's a difference. I mean, there are some, and that um, when they talk about things, there's always a kernel of truth. I, I think, you know, Jim Jordan is an example of this. There is always a kernel of truth in whatever Jim Jordan is talking about. He usually will take that kernel and spin it in a way that is unsupported by the truth. But there is a, a basis for what he's talking about with some others. And, and frankly, I've been very disappointed with Chairman Comer on this, who I had high hopes for. He had, you know, he voted to certify the election um, uh, of Donald Trump, and he has advertised himself to be a, uh, a more um, independent Republican. But a lot of what he says, most of what he says, has no basis in fact and is not truthful. Um, and so that's been, that's been disappointing to see. And every once in a while in an interview, even a Fox News interview, it slips out that, no, he doesn't really have any evidence against um, President Biden. Uh, let me kind of pull back a little bit. Often what Republicans are complaining about is nothing but projection. There was a corrupt family that was benefiting in the White House by foreign connections. And that was the Trump family. Why has there never been a special prosecutor? Obviously, you guys can't mount one, but why has there never been a Senate hearing on any of this? It seems as if, you know, the real criminals or the real wrongdoers, whether it was ethical or criminal or just kind of sleazy, were the Trumps. And no one is holding them to account. You raise a great point. Uh, I mean, if you are really going to look at children of presidents uh, and potential corruption or nefarious actions, uh, why are we focused on the private citizen son of this president and not the daughter and son-in-law of the former president who had senior roles in the White House? And used those roles uh, to get trademarks from China, to get loans from Qatari-backed investment groups to uh, save really bad financial situations, as Jared Kushner did. And then ultimately, to have the 
Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia overrule the investment committee of the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia in order to invest $2 billion in a brand new investment fund of Jared Kushner. And let's be really clear. Jared Kushner was never an investor. That is not what he ever did. His family was in real estate. They did not do uh, private equity investments. And yet the crown prince of Saudi Arabia put $2 billion into a brand new fund. It is uh, un- almost unheard of and unprecedented. And so your your question about projection is the right one, especially given that we have a subcommittee now that the Republicans created called the weaponization of the federal government. And the irony, of course, that Donald Trump, um, who you know called for the uh, firing of Andy McCabe, which happened two days before his retirement, and uh, urged Bill Barr to intervene in the prosecutions of Roger Stone and Michael Flynn and called for Hillary Clinton to be prosecuted and weaponized uh, the Department of Justice in a way that no one has before. And here we are actually having to respond to Republican allegations of the weaponization of the federal government. Uh, It's truly through the looking glass. But I think part of it, Jen, is that it's almost as if this current Republican Party cannot imagine a president or an administration not using their official authority for personal gain. And because Donald Trump normalized that behavior to such a degree, and this Republican Party, especially in the House, which is 100 percent bought and paid for by Donald Trump, cannot imagine that Joe Biden would not do that. But let's look at what the facts are. President Biden kept on a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who is investigating his son. That would be David Weiss. If there is not a better example of restoring the independence in the Department of Justice than to have, uh, to keep on the only U.S. attorney of 94 that Donald Trump appointed and to keep him on because he was investigating the president's son is the exact opposite of what Donald Trump did or would do. And so the hypocrisy should not be lost on anyone. And of course, the Republicans, many of them who are now screaming that he's become a special counsel, were the very ones who were saying, well, why wasn't he a special counsel? So now they're a special counsel and they don't like that either. Um, Let me end on this. Since you did make a rather radical change in careers going from the law to being a a lawmaker. Are you glad you made the change? Is it rewarding or is it more frustrating? I am glad that um, I've thrown myself back into the arena because I truly believe uh, that our country is at a crossroads and our democracy is under attack in a way that it really hasn't been, certainly since the Civil War um, and perhaps in the entire history of our our government. And uh, I thought that given you know my background as a prosecutor, my background having uh, led the impeachment investigation, um, that I had something to contribute to uh, the effort to restore 
our democracy to to maintain and protect and preserve our democratic values, um, to promote the rule of law uh, as the ultimate value that we have in this country. And we are we're in a real existential fight right now um, for the future of our our country. If Donald Trump wins this next election, we will not have a democracy as we have known it for almost 250 years. And I hesitate uh, to use such hyperbole, um, but I really believe it. And I think that what we saw as his term in office evolved was an increasing desire uh, to arrogate all power to the president and to the executive branch. And what we have seen from him Uh, Since then, and what we're seeing from the Heritage Foundation in preparation for a potential Trump administration is going to uh, remake our government in an authoritarian and unilateral way um, that will change the, the future of our country. And so I do think we are in a really unique situation. And so I'm happy that Uh, I'm in the arena and trying to fight for our democracy. Well, you are indeed fighting the good fight. Um, And I must say, as a C-SPAN junkie, I do appreciate your questioning. You have not lost the prosecutorial touch. Um, And, you know, I think um, sometimes the other side is taken aback because facts do matter, actually. And when they come out and they're not favorable to their side, it's embarrassing. Um, and I think you have managed to embarrass them. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that, yeah, and on that point, just, you know, to, to put a fine point on it, um, you see a lot of Republicans, uh, when there are witnesses, make speeches, make allegations, uh, make accusations. And there are witnesses there. Rarely are the witnesses actually firsthand fact witnesses. But it's as if what they they think if they say it in a hearing, it's evidence. And uh, obviously, because of my training, I recognize that, you know, what I say is not evidence. And by the way, that's said in every trial in America. What the lawyers say is not evidence. It's what the witnesses say. And so I do really try to use my time, and it's unfortunately only five minutes, but I try to use my time to focus on those witnesses because that's what the evidence is. And uh, I think that's really important for uh, all of us to remember that whatever we politicians say is not actually evidence. It is what the people in the room uh, on the ground, uh, involved in, in whatever uh, is being investigated, those are the witnesses. And so if you don't have facts or evidence from those witnesses, you don't have facts and evidence. And you cannot support your conclusions no matter how many times you repeat them. Objective reality, what a concept. Thank you so much for coming, Dan Goldman. Good luck in all that you do. I hope you're keeping your sanity and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. Great to be with you. And that was Dan Goldman. Wow. Imagine if he were leading the House, all kinds of corruption and wrongdoing would be uncovered dating back, of course, to the Trump administration. But 
Alasky and Jamie Raskin, who is another brilliant lawyer, um, hold down the fort for truth and reality. And I know how frustrating it is because you know that the Fox News slash right-wing media machine lies and generates controversy and conspiracies based upon nothing. But I hope you got a sense from Dan, and I think you'll get a sense in all of these trials going forward, that facts actually do matter, that reality does matter. We saw that in the E. Jean Carroll case. That was a case where she went before a jury of 12 people, 12 or nine, one of the two, um, and these were ordinary citizens. She told her story, and they believed the facts. And Donald Trump screaming and hollering and complaining from outside the courtroom meant nothing, nothing. And I think going forward, it's really important to keep your eye on the difference between what Trump's lawyers say in the courtroom to the judge or in their filings and what they or Trump say to the media. Because Trump is running a political campaign to keep himself out of jail. This is not a campaign to become president, so much it is a campaign to become president so he doesn't go to jail. And as a result, the arguments, and I use air quotes on those, that he is making have very little to do with the law, with the charges, and with the kinds of defenses that a judge and jury are going to pay attention to. You can't say in a court of law, the prosecutor is a racist, let me go free. That's not going to work. You're not going to be allowed to make that argument, and it's not going to help you even if you somehow got it in. Likewise, making wild accusations about um, other what other presidents might have done, which aren't true, is not going to help you in, for example, the Mar-a-Lago case. First of all, those other presidents didn't take with them hundreds of classified materials. And second of all, it doesn't matter. They've got him and they've got his documents and they've got his recordings and his witnesses. So it's sometimes difficult to remember that a lot of this hullabaloo is generated purely to confuse and bamboozle their supporters and to keep those supporters angry and unified and committed. But the good news is they really are not a majority of Americans. And although the Republican Party, I fear, is lost probably for good, as we know it in its current incarnation, the majority of Americans do get it. 65% of Americans or so although that seems low, um, do believe that Donald Trump tried to overthrow the election, do believe that Joe Biden is the legitimate president. So it's a matter of mobilizing that 65% about creating an electoral majority that turns out, that votes, and that does not allow truth to be obliterated um, by the Fox News, by the right-wing media, by Trump himself. And Although it's frustrating and although at times it seems like we're losing or, quote, he's getting away with it, the beauty of these four cases is I don't think he's going to get away with it. And in one or more of these, I think we're going to see 
ordinary Americans listen to the facts, listen to the law, and render a verdict. And that has always been Trump's greatest fear. And that's why his strategy has essentially boiled down to delay, 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 delay on the hope and the prayer that he will get into office and somehow make all of this stop. Well, I think the trials are going to come up quicker than he imagined. And in terms of the state trials, at least in New York and in Georgia, he can't do anything about them. That's the beauty of the federal system that state prosecutors and state officials operate independent of the federal government. So there's nothing he's going to do about those. And I think uh, it's important to pace ourselves as we get through this year. We have a big year ahead of us. But please keep listening. Please keep reading outside of your listening. You can find my work uh, at The Washington Post. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends and please tell them to listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.